Lone Star 187 is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Case file 06, Colin Davis. All right. Are we ready to dive into the case that shook the Lone Star State? Let's do it. On August 2nd, 1976, a hot summer night in Texas, Fort Worth, Texas, Priscilla Davis and her boyfriend Stan Farr are on their way to her house, which is a giant $6 million mansion in Fort Worth. And they have had a night together, having dinner, having some drinks. They come home, and Priscilla goes in through the back door, and the security system and locks, I guess in the 70s, it was like a panel that had lights on it. Well, I don't know that you can compare this one to normal security systems, because this house was six... Would you say? Six, six million. Six million. That's true. So it probably doesn't have the normal security system that other people at that time had. So it's it's like, from what I read, some people compared it to like Fort Knox. So it's just very high tech for that time. So she notices that the security system is not set and that all the security locks are off. So it was a little bit weird because she had left her 12-year-old daughter, Andrea, in the home while she went out. And they, they're arriving at the mansion about 1230 a.m., and just before uh, she gets to the back door, she notices that that security is disabled. So they go inside. Stan goes up towards the back stairs towards their bedroom. And she goes into the kitchen and notices there are still several lights on in the house, which was not common. So she went around and saw the door leading down to the basement was open and the light was on. And on the wall was a bloody fingerprint. Mm-mm. So she turned into the door and saw a blood handprint on the door facing where the door was. So she screamed for Stan to come here and then Cullen Davis, her estranged husband, Mm -mm. steps out from the direction of the laundry room dressed in all black wearing a woman's shoulder length wig (laughs) that's curly on the ends and had both hands together with a black plastic bag around a gun. He stepped out and said hi, and then he shot her in the chest. She grabbed her chest where she had been shot and screamed that she had been shot and that Cullen is the one that shot her and for Stan to go back, not to come where she was. But she could hear him coming, so she said that her husband rushed past her and went towards where Stan was coming from the bedroom. And she heard Cullen fire the gun, and she heard Stan cry out. I guess he was standing on the other side of a door, so Cullen shot him through the door. He stood there and he opened the door. Stan came out and grabbed him. They wrestled to the floor where Stan turned his back to Priscilla. She heard another shot. He fell down and he looked at her, breathing in a raspy voice. He did tell her he loved her. And Cullen stood at his feet and shot him two more times. Stan put his head down and passed away. Priscilla said that Cullen grabbed Stan's ankles and dragged him into the kitchen. She said as soon as Cullen was out of sight, she got to her feet and ran through a patio door onto the lawn. She knew that the door she was going to open to get out to the patio was going to make some noise, but it was worth it for her to get out. 
She opened it and knew Cullen was going to be after her. So she ran down the walkway and turned and saw that Cullen was right behind her. And she told him, I love you. I've never loved anyone else. He grabbed her by the arm, started dragging her back towards the house where she had just left. And he just kept telling her to come on. He wasn't giving her any answers. She kept pleading with her husband to let her go and that he was hurting her. As they approached the patio door that she had ran out of, she said that Cullen dropped her and went back into the house. So she reached down, she took her shoes off, she jumped up, she wrapped her skirt around her and ran. Outside, she jumped into a row of shrubbery to hide. Um, she said she saw shrubbery. Cullen. She said she saw him walk out of the door in a path towards her, and at that time he wasn't wearing the wig. So she could definitely tell that it See, was him. I didn't read that he took it off, but yeah. Then um, he reappeared in the patio door uh, and walked a few feet past her, and she said she heard a woman's voice that was familiar. So once she heard the woman talking, she realized it was Bev Bass, who was a friend of her oldest daughter, Dee. She said she heard her saying, who is that? Who are you? She could tell the voices were going away from the garage. So Priscilla said she crawled out of the shrubbery and started running again uh, to a neighbor. And as she was running that way, she heard another gunshot, and she heard a woman scream. And she just kept running to a neighbor's door. She was banging on the door. Please open, please open. Cullen's at the house and he's shooting everyone. So Thomas Cullen Davis was born in 1933 in Fort Worth. He was an oil heir, meaning, you know, his dad was really rich and owned Ken Davis Industries. So he was really well off. His dad was pretty controlling. So it was him, and he had two other brothers, so just three sons. They said his dad raised the boys with an iron fist. Yes, I read that too. It was very yes. stern. Of the three boys, Cullen was the most problematic. The other two boys, like the mom said, that they didn't really get in trouble that much, but Cullen seemed to be always pushing the envelope. He did the opposite of what they wanted him to do from the beginning. So it was problematic, which, you know, is pretty consistent with people based on our stories. Like, if they're mm -hmm. problem children, that right. doesn't mean if your child's a problem, he's going to be a killer. But, I'm just saying, he could have tendencies. It's pretty consistent with what we've been talking about so far. So he met Sandra in the early 60s and got married. And he was very extravagant. According to what I read, they went on a honeymoon that consisted of 36 countries in six weeks. They went to Christian Dior showings in Paris. And he bought her a $10,000 mink coat. So spending money wasn't a big problem to him at all. I read that he was best known around Fort Worth for his way with women. But his wife Sandra accused him of slapping her around in public, beating her in private to the point where she had bruises all over her face. I do have that he was considered a spoiled rich kid growing up to become a very angry aggressive man and even though he had lots of money not just by what he worked for and what he was given but he still wanted more even though he made lots of money it wasn't enough and he always wanted the most richest of rich things and he did have a dark side where he was unhappy with Sandra and he had had fantasies about killing her if he got tired of her. And that was his oh, first wife. that's right. I read that too. I read that he, he did have, and he imagined it. And that he was always looking for the next step in life as far as being on his own and having everything he wanted and not what his dad wanted. And that he collected expensive things and stored them for when he did once have his own place that he could put it out as his own. Yep. Okay, so then he's married to Sandra and he's going, you know, he's... Goes to this country club all the time, clearly living the life of luxury. So he meets feisty, flirtatious <laughs> Priscilla Wilborn, who's, and this is what I read, that her platinum hair and revealing halter tops, which gave men a good view of what they call her balcony. Oh, dang. 
look out for the balconies, people, <laughs> made her the talk of the town. He was completely smitten with her and wooed her away from her husband, who was a used car dealer. She was the daughter of a rodeo bum. Yep. And she grew up poor. I read a few times that they kept saying she just grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. Yep. So she was just considered trailer trash from the beginning just because of where she was born and grew up. And that she was always dreaming of having better things. That she loved life, art, and poetry. And by the age of 27, she had already been married twice and had three children, one son, and two daughters. Mm -hmm. So, unfortunate, typical. B both different dads. While she was married to her second husband, the car dealer, um, she Jack, craved... right? Yes, Jack yes. Wilborn, yes. She craved that social elite life. Especially being in Fort Worth, I guess it was very happening it was growing the oil is booming and she would see those people want to be part of that so she naturally was a very dark brunette so she decided to dye her hair blonde and go through a completely different attire she wanted to start wearing low-cut shirts to show off her balcony okay yeah and short shorts and so she signed up for tennis lessons at the country club that cullen frequented and shortly after she started he noticed her so they fell hard and they were in an illicit affair and they had an affair, well, on New Year's of 1968. Oh, I remember this, yes. Her and uh, Cullen were at a very expensive hotel, and they didn't hide from anyone they were going to be there. They told their friends they were going to be there. So it wouldn't be hard for anyone in his family or hers to find out, especially him being a millionaire as he was right. and as uh, prominent as he was in the community, that he was going to be at this hotel. So her husband hired detectives, and while they're in the middle of it, they burst into the hotel room taking pictures and completely outing this affair that had been going on. And then seven months later, they get married. Yeah, I remember that now, too. Bust in, and they're like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, can you imagine? And in that scene of the movie, um, <laughs> she, like... <laughs> <laughs> she like takes champagne and like spills it and then, then rubs it all over her and her daughter talks about in an interview that the movie was very trashy and she felt that her mom was that was not her but when priscilla watched it she said they couldn't have explained her to a better tea and i thought what polar opposite like I mean, what daughter wants to know that that yeah you don't want to admit that about your but mom. then she looks back and she's like, yeah, that's right. That was me. Uh -huh. That I'm was so me. Proud. That was all me. I'm so proud of myself. So they're married seven months later. Yeah, in 1968. the day that they get married just happens to be the day that his father passes away right. with a heart attack. So his dad was not happy. His dad did not like her at all and didn't want him with her. So when they got the news that his, they were already planning to get married, on that day, his dad passed away. They had to go to see the attorneys and get the distribution of their father's estate. Him and his brothers are sitting there and he tells his brother, well, I got to go. I'm going to go get married. And his brother said, can't you just wait a little while? And he's like, oh, I'll wait a few more hours. So basically they got married the same day that his dad passed away. I hope that whole relationship isn't what caused his dad to have a heart attack. You know? I hope not. I hope not. Okay, so they're married and he doesn't want to live with his dad anymore because that's where they were living. So he decides that he wants to build his dream home, this mansion that he's, you know, accumulated all this stuff to, you know, this is his dream. So he says he builds this house for Priscilla. Let's talk about this house a little bit. So it was, like you said, $6 million. It had five bedrooms, 11 bathrooms, an indoor pool, and the master bedroom was 2,000 square feet. Just the master bedroom. Their master bedroom was bigger than our house. Like, what would you put in there? Like, Whatever the hell you want. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> It's amazed. a little extreme. It had courtyards, 
tunnels, balconies, and was decorated with more than 100 oil paintings. And, and it, it, I read it had its own power plant. Yeah, I read that too. Yeah. Its own power plant. It, that is insane. I can't, I can't imagine. <laughs> In the WFAA video, there was that one lady that they were talking to. With the beautiful blue eyes. I don't know. She had the blonde hair. She's real country. And I think her name was something Arnold, I think. And she was talking about her favorite part of the house was that they had a king-size bed with a silver fox silk bedspread. Bed yes. And that at one point to fill the house, he went to New York to a artist and he bought the place out. Yeah, they went to some, I thought it was like a like an antique, mm -hmm. uh, an art studio that also had a bunch of antiques in there. And, and like that's portrayed in the movie where they mm -hmm. go in and he buys everything. And the, that guy, he writes him a check and the guy just isn't, he's like, dumbfounded. He's, he's like, in awe. Okay, well, here you go. Here you go. I'll take your check, take your money and you can have all my shit. Well, I mean, you'd have to buy a whole store to fill just a bedroom. Yeah. 2,000 square feet? Yeah. I mean, if you, because that's like you said, that's bigger than you and mom's house. So if you think about it, if you go in somewhere and you have to fill a house full of stuff, mm -hmm. you would have to buy out a pretty good portion of a store to fill up. Absolutely. All right. So of course, Priscilla's in heaven because this is what she's always wanted. She's got this rich man who loves her and now she's going to be able to hobnob with the suits or whatever. Did you say hobnob? I did. I said hobnob with the suits. Let's just say she'll be able to, you know, be a part of the Texas socialites that she's always wanted to be a part of. She can hang out with all the uh, real housewives of Fort Worth. <laughs> I don't know if that's a real thing, but I imagine that's what she did. I read that she had, he bought her a gold necklace. Engraved on it was Rich Bitch, and it was, it had diamonds on it. And she wore it all the time. Like, anytime there was a big social engagement, she wore it. So, it was very well talked about that she had this Rich Bitch necklace that she was proud to, to wear above her balcony. So, everybody could see it. But uh, she really wasn't the rich one. Her husband was. Well, you and know... I know Whatever you got to you know. do, right, I guess. And he was very proud of the house. And he would, like, go in sometimes and just look at it. Like, just stand in a room and just look at yeah. it. Which, I mean, if you've always wanted something, like, I know there's things, we, you know, you want and you finally get. And you're just so, like, I finally got my first brand new car. And I right. did, like, a few times just look at it. Like, stand this is really mine. And all, like, oh. But I can't imagine having this giant, like, which, I mean, that's a lot of rooms to go to and stand in awe. You excessive. have more bathrooms than you do bedrooms. Which is a little weird. It's crazy, but hey. I guess because he You never knew. have to wait in line. I guess. I mean, if you're having a bunch of parties and you're yeah. you're like this, you probably have a lot of meetings and a lot of people coming and going and, you know, I don't know. I just think it's odd. Yeah, it's a lot of toilet paper. Yeah. A lot of hand soap. Well, and they, they started having big parties there rumored with drugs, sex, and orgies, which is a little weird. Was that when they were together? Or mm -hmm. Was that... Okay. This was right after it was done and they moved in. Did you hear about the private screening that he did? Yes. Was that Debbie Dust Dallas? No. No, Deep Throat. Deep Throat. He threw a private screening in his giant mansion with all his country club buddies on a big screen of a porn of all things. So like, weird. not like... I got a secret, like, I don't know what movie may have come out in the 70s, but... This new movie that just came out to theaters, I got a private screening. I'm going to show it to my buddies. No, I'm going to show you Deep Throat. And you can't tell me that all those guys in there, there weren't women there. Oh, I'm sure. And then mixed with drugs and alcohol. I mean, it's just how it was. And they were still young. She was like barely 30. Mm -hmm. She was, what, 32 or so? And he was 38, 39. So they were still young. And both sets of kids were older. Yeah. And most of her kids stayed with their dad and his kids stayed with their mom. So they right. were like teenagers again, you know? Party, party. Watching no Deep rules. Throat and Snort and Coke. 
No rules. Hookers and blow. Hookers and blow. And he, the, he, of course, spoiled her and bought her everything. And did you read what she had at Texas Stadium? Yes. They had her own skybox, and she had them painted pink. Yeah. When I, I read that, too. I was like, oh, mom would be so mad. You don't do that. <laughs> like, I'm surprised. That, so that was the old stadium. Yes. The one in Irving that they tore down. Tore down. I wonder how long they left it like that after they lost everything. Yeah. Right? I don't know. I can't believe they let and do it, And I just it, can't whatever. imagine, like... You, like, yes, you've come into all this money and you're now, like, a rich bitch and you're now a social elite person in Fort Worth. But then, like, you have the audacity and you feel so full of yourself that you can walk into Texas Stadium and say, that's our skybox and I want it pink. They did it. I mean, imagine, I don't know, the guy, what do the guys think when they go in there to, like, watch football and drink? Are they, like, why the hell is this pink? Fucking Victoria's (laughs) Secret threw up in here or something, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. and it'd be one thing if she's like, I want you to decorate it like balls to the wall, cowboys, like everything cowboys, painted blue, painted with silver. I want cowboys chairs. I want cowboys cups. Like I could see that. I'd be like, yeah, it's great. Yeah. She's a great fan. But it's about her. She wants it pink. Doesn't it? Doesn't compute with my logic, but. They both, obviously, I heard many places that they were very devoted and they did love each other. They yes. did fall very hard for each other. They did. Um, and that she did everything he wanted her to. Yes. Anything that he said, she did. Yep. Any she did parties work. they went to. Her life was making him happy and, and portraying them as this awesome couple and being in the limelight and doing whatever he told her to do because it rubs the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. <laughs> well, and he, she, I mean, he, she is beautiful and he's on her arm everywhere that he has to take her. So I'm sure maintenance was something she had to keep on top of. Like he sent her to Europe to get silicone breast implants. Yep. And she went and just did it. Like Why I would be, she? I don't know. I wouldn't, but no. that's me. Well, and I guess Dallas wasn't as obviously prominent yet with when it comes to surgeries and as much as it was in the 90s and Well, today. even if it was, he would still give her the best of the best. So it didn't really matter at that point, probably what Dallas did or didn't have. If you have the money, you're going to get the best of whatever. And if going to Europe was what the rich people did, then that's what you did, that's right? That's true, yeah. Um, and, so and at that point, it was just the two of them. But their oldest daughter, Priscilla's oldest daughter, Dee, moved into the mansion at some point. I don't have the date on that, do you? No. So at some point in the 70s, like after they got married... D moved in with them. And but she was in, about 18 around that time, yeah, right? Yeah, and then their, her youngest, Andrea, would visit, but she didn't live there. But D lived there. And their, her son, Jack, he didn't really go there very often, no, right? No, no. He stayed with the dad. I didn't read anything about him being there even as often as Andrea was. Mm-hmm. There's a, an interview that I watched, and she goes into great detail about what it was like living there, how she felt about Cullen, and how she noticed that the generosity from monetary perspective was only limited to her mother. So he didn't spoil them with all of his money. It was, the money was just spent on her, on... Really? Yeah. That's what I read. That's what Dee said. She said his generosity was only limited to her mother. And she said that it was really uncomfortable. She said that it, some days she felt like if she said the wrong thing, he would literally reach across and punch her in the face. D or Priscilla? D. There was physical abuse going on as well, but Dee wasn't subjected to it because she wasn't there often enough. So until she moved in, she didn't know. When I did read that she would calculate, like when he would come in, like how he closed the door, mm-hmm. how he walked, how his clearing of the throat, like every single attribute or every action that he did, she watched to see how that was going to be for what the rest kind of, of the evening. evening they would have. And whether she'd be in her room or she'd be downstairs. And that was Priscilla or Dee? 
That was D. Okay, yeah. There was one particular incident that stuck out in her mind. She was 13. Colin came up into her room in the middle of the night, and she had forgotten to lock the doors. So I guess the security system was just a really big deal to him. Everything I read and saw, he, you know, showed them how to do it and told them, you do not go to bed without locking everything. So he woke her up and she had forgotten to lock the doors. So he put his hands on his hips and yelled, why do we lock the doors at night? And she's pissed off at him. And she says, so no one steals your precious junk. And he punched her in the nose and broke it. So of course, Priscilla comes in like, what's going on? And Priscilla is holding a kitten. So she comes downstairs with this kitten and Colin grabs a kitten and slams it down on the floor and then picks it up and slams it down on the floor again, killing it. What was the point in killing the cat? He was just pissed off. He wanted to prove a point, I guess. I don't know. He's just pissing on everything. I'm a man. I'm going to piss on everything. I don't yeah, know. Right? Just That's controlling and wanted to prove his point. Hey, you don't leave the damn doors unlocked. There were... Lots of phone calls to the Fort Worth police that oh, Dee yeah. and her mom both made that he was beating them. But interesting enough, the police never went out. I bet he had someone on the inside that I he mean, was if paying. I mean, he, he basically owns Fort Worth. Him and right. his family own Fort Worth. Like, any money that comes into that city is from the Davis oil industry. So, I'm sure the policemen, I mean, especially back in the 70s, it's a much different time. I'm sure the sheriff and everybody else, I'm sure he was in their pockets. Yeah, and they I'm sure. did what he said and when he said it because he money is power yeah so there were many phone calls made and reports were made but there was never follow-ups policemen never went out and checked on the safety of her or d um never went and checked to make sure everything was okay or follow-ups to make sure they were okay it was just a phone call was made oh he's beating me and they would say you know okay and we'll make a report she didn't say come arrest him but I mean, now if I pick up the phone and say my husband is beating me, policemen are going to be here. Yeah. If Callie or Jack call and say my dad's beating me, they're going to come out. They're not and just going to kick your ass, Russell. <laughs> so during that time, she, there were lots of phone calls. So there was reported abuse during the time that they were married from the mansion. Yeah. There was an incident that happened in the movie that I never read about. Which one was that? When they were at their, I think it was their wedding anniversary or something. It had this, they had this giant party. Mm -hmm. And I think Priscilla got really drunk. And she was stumbling around. And Cullen saw that she was flirting with one of the bartenders or something. So he came over. They start fighting. And she's yelling, you know, about his abuse. Mm -hmm. And just causing a scene. And everybody just stops down and she's yeah. staring at her that was the year she filed for divorce because that was when she came back from her little escapade right with the broken foot so though he was an abusive asshole i'm not saying that anybody deserves to get beat but with what he had did for her uh -uh. what he had did <laughs> what he had did for her yo what he had done for her and pulled her out of <laughs> pulled her out of the other side of the tracks, gave her everything she wanted, made her what she wanted, gave her a house, gave her jewelry, gave her all this stuff. Then she turns around and cheats on him. You're and not saying she deserved any of that, right? I'm not saying she deserves it. I'm okay. not. But I understand where his rage may have been coming from. I get being upset about it. And being but upset. Not, I'm not saying it was okay yeah. for him to put his hands on her. But she wasn't perfect either. It's not like right. she was this sweet little housewife that did everything he wanted and, you know, was perfect. Well, maybe in the beginning it was like that. But clearly... As time goes on, the money's not enough. They, you know, he's probably eyeballing someone else. And she, I mean, because they were cheating. They met and they were cheating on their current yeah, I've never spouses. understood how people like, how I, I could, like you cheat on your husband and then your man me. cheats on her, his wife. And then y'all get together. Like if you did it to each other, what makes you think you're not exactly. going to do it to each other? And that's what I'm getting at. You know, is that like 
what makes you better? What makes that other person better that you won't do it to them? Because exactly. you did it to your husband, and then now this person's your husband. How does the husband think that it won't happen? Oh, but it won't happen to me. She won't do that to me, and I won't do that to Whatever her. Whatever right. they'll do for you, they'll do to you. Right. And that's yeah. what's happening. So they go, she goes on a trip where they go to Vermont. You, you know, have the details from, of that well, From the trial, Mr. <laughs> W.T. Ruffner, who is my favorite person. <laughs> I think he's one of my favorite people. Like, I would love to have met him or been friends with him. Cause he's hilarious. Because this was one of her one of her boyfriends, maybe potential drug dealers from all the sex parties and stuff like that, right? Yeah. So they went to Boston in 1974, which was the year that Cullen and Priscilla divorced. And she arranged to use the Davis private jet to go to Boston. Which, hold on, speaking of the private jet, I remember reading that he used company money to buy that. And he bought like a top of the line jet that was just were brand new and just being made. And his brothers were so pissed at him because they were like, this is company money and you're buying something you don't even need. But he had to have it because he wanted to go where he wanted to go when and not have to get a car or anything. He just wanted to fly here, fly there. So I remember having that jet caused a lot of problems with him and his brothers as if there weren't enough problems. There. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Priscilla probably asked for the jet. <laughs> Maybe. So I don't have enough in the $6 million mansion with right. my 11 bathrooms. I'd really appreciate if I had a jet too, to match. Can it say rich bitch on the side yeah. <laughs> to match my necklace? <laughs> so um, they flew to Boston and they rented a motorhome and they went on a trip to the Willie Nelson picnic. Yes. And while they shared this motorhome, her they shared a and lot Mr. Ruffner were looking at balconies and all kinds <laughs> of stuff and they traded different kinds of drugs and you know they just had a great time in this rv so when they flew back she brought him with her yes and so as they're getting off the plane because she while they were there she got drunk or was high or whatever was going on and she broke her ankle so she's in a boot so her and her friend suzanne come off the jet she comes down and she's on crutches and he's clearly irritated because you're supposed to be a wife of a very wealthy man and here you are coming from another state and you're probably drunk and he I'm sure knows of her drug habits if she had any at the time and her drinking habits and she gets off this jet she's got a broken ankle and then out comes this guy and she's like oh well he just needed a ride back so I told him he could just ride with us mm -hmm. and he's like are you freaking kidding me <laughs> like you don't think I know what's going on so I think that kind of also hurried up that. So I think shortly after that was the anniversary party and she had gotten more hooked on Percodan mm -hmm. because of the pain in her foot um, that she was given a script for. And so she mixed that with alcohol. And so she's drinking, I think it was her sixth anniversary. They're drinking and she's getting very sloppy and very handsy. And that has to be very embarrassing for him because yeah. he's, his dad set this high precedent of who the Davis boys are. And all the other boys are towing in line, but then he is just really, off the map. He, who, Colin? Yeah. Yeah, he's not. And that's what I was saying. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. The other boys, I mean, they're great, but then you have this one who just can't seem to follow the rules and be, so his dad has set this precedent, right? And he can't meet it. And now his wife can't meet it. And now he's this, I mean, everybody's <laughs> probably looking at him like, who the hell is he? His poor dad would turn over in his grave if he saw this. You know, he's a Davis boy, and he's very, very wealthy, and this is how he behaves. I'm pretty sure all of his friends were just used to his antics at that point. 
True. Know, it's just one of the, I mean, everybody has that couple that when you go hang out with them, there's almost always some drama or some kind of fight or some kind of bullshit, and you're just used to it. You're like, oh, well, it's no big deal. That's, they do that all the time. You just... Roll with it. Who they are. I'm sure that's what their friends are like. Oh, okay. The entertainment has arrived. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess shortly after that anniversary is whenever... um, They separated. She tells him to get his shit and get out of his own mansion. Which was in 1974. Dee and her mom have had enough of the abuse, so... I think she falls for divorce. Dee says that Priscilla and Colin divorced because her mom was tired of the barrage of abuse. He controlled everything, where she went, who she went with, everything. Well, and also um, her daughter said that she couldn't, even though she had monetary-wise everything she needed to be in the social elite group, she herself, Priscilla, just did not fit. And the other women didn't like her. Yeah. They wouldn't hang out with her. Like, there's one scene in the movie shortly after they built the house and they had a few parties and they were at their, I guess, a yearly engagement that they would go to. And he's, they're barely there and she's hanging on his side and he's like, go be with the other wives. Like, go find your place. Like I have business to attend to. And she's like, none of them like me. They won't talk to me. And so she convinces him to leave early and they go two step in when she, with her rich bitch necklace and her balcony and they they leave and they go and so a couple years in a row he doesn't attend because she doesn't feel comfortable because nobody likes her because she just doesn't fit she's probably flirting with her husbands and yeah she's that one where they're like you look at your husband and you're like don't talk to her don't look at her don't even acknowledge her presence (laughs) keep your eyes off her damn balcony okay her european balcony at this point (laughs) So Dee was saying that another memory that she has that's very, um, that that made a huge impression was that when they split up, Priscilla's attorney made Cullen leave the mansion. So Priscilla got to stay there with her daughter and Cullen had to leave. Um, And Dee said that she could see in his eyes and his body language that he was holding in his grudge of not being in control and not being able to stay in his place. Uh, because like you mentioned earlier, he had a love affair with that house. It was his baby. Well, in one of the rooms, you know, uh, I will put a picture up, but they had a portrait made of both of them where there's all these different poses of them painted of this giant portrait that hung above the fireplace. Yes. And it was huge. There's a, there's a scene in the movie. He's sitting in a chair with his whatever fancy drink and he's looking at that picture and it is massive it is like look at what i did this is Mm -hmm. all mine yeah who wants a picture of themselves no i don't want that above my fireplace so they've moved out they've moved out well he's he's, moved out he's kicked rocks he's yeah he's out so he goes and finds his own place which is on the complete opposite side of town Mm mm-hmm uh, and so she lives there with D, and then at some point I think Andrea starts staying there full time. When either that or she was just there, I think she was just there, right? Because I know, and maybe she came around more because he was gone. He was gone. Yeah. Cullen starts dating a secretary named Karen Masters, mm-hmm. and in a very morbid, weird way, he kind of makes her into Priscilla lookalike. Point two. So he morphs her into. He starts paying for her to have her hair dyed blonde. Because it was blonde before, but he starts having her diet platinum. It needs to be bleached. And she starts wearing more 
revealing clothes that she didn't before. Because she was a stay-at-home mom previously with her previous husband. She had, I think, one or two sons in her previous marriage. So they're with her all the time. And his sons are coming over more. And so she's keeping all of the boys. So she just started changing into another Priscilla. Priscilla 2.0. That's sad. So... Clearly, I think he still loved Priscilla and he wanted it to work, but he just went too far. Yeah. So I think he was trying to use Karen as a way of fulfilling that need for Priscilla. Yeah. They're going through a divorce. The divorce attorney, I don't remember his name. His name comes up again later. Edson. Edson. Mm -hmm. He is, of course, Colin can't stay there. So Colin's not in his mansion and he's made to pay Priscilla $3,500 a month. He's also having to pay for all of her medical bills with her issue with her ankle. Even though she did it out home and around. Exactly. Even though she, you know, hoof a show. And then um, he's paying other expenses. So he's paying all this money. He's not there. And she's living it up. Like while he's making all these payments, she's going back to having the same kind of parties that they had when they were together. Drugs and sex and rock and roll, basically, right? There's all kinds of parties and... She starts dating a guy named Stan Farr, right? Mm-hmm. He was a basketball player at TCU. He's huge, like, what'd you say, 6'9"? Mm-hmm. So it's this massive guy, big guy. Um, so they're dating. So he's there all the time. Dee still lives there. Andrea's there now and then. But So when I was reading this, I was thinking, are they having these wild parties while the kids are there? I hope not. Are they having them when the kids are gone? Because I, I hate know. the thought of them being up in their room and having to be subjected to... All the shit that's going on there. In that giant of a mansion, it could be like in two different apartments. That's and they true. could be they could have their own living quarters and she could be on that's the other true. side and she could be saying, you know, they could take care of themselves. Mom's gonna have a party over here, don't come on this side of the house. And they yeah. could still have run of the mill. Unlike, you know, like in our house or in your house, it, we couldn't have a party like that. <laughs> not while the kids are here. No, no. definitely not. So I mean, I know most of the parties were around the pool in the summertime, you Mm -hmm. know, pool parties and stuff like that. And so so the pool was indoor, correct? But didn't it have a retractable roof? I guess so, because I I remember seeing lots of pictures of it, and it looked like it was outside. Mm -hmm. But when we read the details of the mansion, it said it was indoor. So maybe it could be both. I'm sure $6 million, you get whatever the hell you want. That's true. Maybe you have an indoor and an outdoor pool. I don't know. Yeah. Looking at it topographically, though, I never saw the pool. Me either. So it must have some kind of retractable roof or uh, maybe those giant garage doors that you could open up and make it look. I don't know. So they had all these parties. And um, so this is kind of where the, the guy that you love so much comes in too, right? Yeah, he starts coming around more because... Colin's gone. Colin's gone, and she's starting to date Stan, who at this he at this time he was just a bar owner, so there's not really much he could offer her. I right. mean, in comparison, which I was kind of surprised to hear who he was, because I was thinking, how do you go from dating a man that's worth millions to dating a bar owner? Like I just felt like she would have gone after some other man in the country club, but then looking at her past and who she is and the kind of party she wants to have, those country club men would have had no interest in her. Well, she already got what she wanted in that she had the beautiful house and all the money. So at that point, it wasn't about getting somebody that was rich. It was just about doing whatever the fuck she wanted to do with whomever she wanted to do it. That's true, yeah. It was just surprising at first. I'm yeah, like, I'm surprised I guess they met it. at a bar since he owned a bar. I, yeah, don't, I, I didn't d- really read how they met. I read an article um, in the Dallas Morning News about a girl that was a bartender at a bar in Fort Worth, I guess close to where the mansion was. 
and she saw she served Stan and her a few times, and um, I think the bar she worked at is the one Stan owned. Okay. But she's like, there's one picture which I'll put up of her like from the side. And of Priscilla? Of Priscilla, and she's standing at the bar, and you can kind of see someone next to her. But she frequented that bar very often, so I, that's probably where she met him. Because um, I'm sure she probably went back to her roots, right? Cause yeah. Because she's not going to go to the country club, I guess. Nope. And not going to go... Especially if the other wives didn't like her. Like, there's nothing for her there. Mm-hmm. She's getting money every month. She doesn't have to work. So, and now this controlling husband of hers isn't there to tell her what she can and can't do. And so she's just, it's a free-for-all, do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. So so Priscilla's dragging the divorce on for, yeah, I think, a few at reasons. At least two years. Number one, she want, she's not ready to give up the house. So until she hears that she can keep the house, she's not ready to settle. There's a certain amount of money she wants in the settlement, which he hasn't agreed upon yet. She still wants to have these lavish parties. And she ultimately knows exactly what she wants to come out with. So she's dragging the divorce on. She's not agreeing to the settlement. While he can't go there, so he's living with Karen, and um, his funds have become more tied up because the divorce attorney, Mr. Edson, meets with him and basically tells him the way that's looking and how long this has been dragged on, she's probably going to get the mansion, and she's going to get a portion of the money from the oil. So on top of everything you built, she's going to get a lot of it. They basically tell him, you can't spend money unless you come to me. Right. So you can't be going out buying stuff for Karen and her kids and your kids unless you get it run by us. And or even like, like expanding the business. Like they, she even put a halt to the business acquisition part of it too. Like their company came to a screeching halt because... Of her. Uh, because of her. Everything had to go through her attorney. So I'm sure that was very, very... Frustrating. Angering for him to know that I can't even... Live my life I can't right even now. Do business. I can't further my career. My brothers would. None of us can go forward until this heifer figures out what she wants to do. And then there was another meeting too with Cullen and Priscilla and their attorneys, and that's whenever Priscilla's attorney basically told him he had to pay more money, right? Yeah, <clears throat> by fifteen hundred dollars more. Right. So thirty. So on top of having to pay for a mansion he can't live in and the power plant it costs to keep it running, mm-hmm. all the expenditures of the home, her foot, and now I'm sure all her drug habits, and all the parties she's having, now he has to pay her fifteen hundred dollars more. Right. And that meeting happened the afternoon of August the second, nineteen seventy six. Hmm. It's an interesting little quink quinky little, dink. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Quinky dink there. So he he is not in control. He knows she's having these wild parties. Priscilla has a boyfriend. He has a girlfriend. So I don't think there's any jealousy going on there. But it's a matter of he can't go to his mansion. He can't stay there. He can't do any new business. He can't really do anything. And she's just dragging her feet and not agreeing to anything because she doesn't want to stop living the lifestyle. Because I'm sure she knows that... She won't get the mansion. I mean, it was his. He built it. Mm-hmm. The money. Now, I'm sure she would get, was supposed to get some amount of what they accrued during their marriage because that's how it is. The state of Texas, it's 50 50, mm-hmm. right? But that was his house, you know? It, I, I don't know. I'm different. I, I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have wanted want it. I would have rolled out. If I was getting beaten, yeah. I'm getting my shit and my kids and I'm leaving. Or I don't want to dime. shit out of you. I don't want a dime of your money. I don't want your filthy, no. nasty money. I don't want it. As soon as you go to sleep, I'm going to slip some bars of soap in a pillowcase and I'm going to beat the living shit out of you. 
So next week's and episode. Then I'm roll out. <laughs> next week's episode <laughs> is about a crazy woman from Plano who butchers her husband. So then, in the evening of August second, right? Well, actually, so I guess it would be August first to... that the meeting happened because it happened at twelve thirty on the second. Right. So then, Later into then the night, Priscilla comes home and all this happens. Right. And she's saying that it had it was Cullen. I know it was him, and I I saw him. Um, but the saddest part about it is what they find when they when they get there. Yeah. So basically the security system was disabled, like we said earlier. A man dressed in black wearing a black wig gets past the security system. Um, they basically said, so they found 12-year-old Andrea in the freaking basement, shot execution style. So they just find her? They and find then, her, and then and Stan, Stan is in the hallway. And then um, whenever the voices that she heard of Bev Bass and her fiancé, Bubba Gus Gavril. Gavril. Gavril was shot. Fortunately, he survived, but unfortunately, he was shot in the spine, which paralyzed him. Yeah, I read that too. He was so, paralyzed. He um, was paralyzed. Three, two were killed, one was wounded. And so pretty much everyone that was there that night that survived all pointed to Colin. Yeah, Everybody they, said it was him. They recognized his his frame, his voice, and even through the wig. I mean, he didn't have... His face wasn't disguised. He just had a wig on. You dumb. So, for real. You are so dumb if you think a black wig. And then, like, a black wig, your hair's black. Yeah. You know, like, you think he would have chose, like, a red wig or maybe a blonde wig or a purple wig. You know, something that would just be... A black mask on his face would have would have done the deal all done. And maybe not say anything. Yeah. Like if they know who you are and they know your voice, just don't talk. Yeah. Right. But I guess maybe he. I mean, the one thing that doesn't make sense to me is he puts the wig on and he thinks, okay, like no one's gonna know it's me, right? But then um, I don't know. It's just the wig just throws me off. Like out of all things, just a black wig, a curly black wig. So he gets arrested. Right? So then yeah. they... Yeah. Did you hear where they arrested him? Wasn't he at the house with Karen? No. He was arrested at Fort Worth Airport. And they asked him, uh, Mr. Where Davis, are where do you think you're going? Mm-hmm. He's like, I'm just going to go to Houston real quick for some business deals. And they asked the pilot, and he's like, no, no, no. We're all fueled up to go to Brazil. Right. And so, of course, he's taken into custody. Priscilla, number two, is in shock, and she's crying. She's like, no, he's been with me all night. We went to a movie, and then we came home, and we went to bed, and we're, and they're like, why are you getting on a plane at, uh, I think it was like three in the morning? She's like, because we're going to Brazil, and we have to be on the flight now so that we can make it in enough time in Brazil, right, because of the time change. And they're like, why did he say that y'all were going to Houston? He's like, we wouldn't be going to Houston first. And then we're going to Brazil. And how far ahead had this trip been planned? Did they talk about that, I wonder? I don't know. I think she knew they were going to be going to Brazil. Because she acted like they had known about this trip. But she was trying to make excuses for the Houston part. Because she's like, well, maybe we're going to go to Houston first. Which, I mean, is south. But I don't know when it comes to planes, which way you're going to go. I mean, Brazil's south. I mean, Mm -hmm. it is. So I guess maybe they were going to go to hit Houston first. I don't know. It's a long flight to Brazil. So So he's apprehended. Yep. And Priscilla's sent to the hospital with a, which was weird. We both got conflicting stories. You read chess and I read many articles and said the abdomen, but you had an interesting story. Yeah. I I read that she, um, ironically enough, this boob job that she had done in Europe ended up saving her life because when she was shot in the left chest, 
and the bullet didn't penetrate all the way through her chest wall because of the silicone implant. Wow. So it ended up saving her life. <laughs> her her balcony ended up being the reason that she's alive to tell her story today. Her European um, balcony. But I didn't read anything about it being in the abdomen. It always said that she was shot in the chest. Which and- makes makes more sense to me because from where she ran from the house all the way to the neighbor's house, the neighbor was quoted saying that it was a fourth of a mile from the back patio to their front door. So, I mean, if you're shot and you're bleeding, especially an abdominal wound, I can't imagine you in a hot summer night and you've been drinking and probably doing blow and everything else. Right. And then you're going to run a fourth of a mile. I would think that you'd be bleeding a lot more. But she didn't really have that much blood on her, which makes more sense. Yeah. It was in her chest. It was just a superficial wound. Yep. Yeah. Um, which makes a lot more sense. And yeah. how she was able to run not, and get, yeah, not be in so much pain and bleeding and coughing up blood to be able to get there, right. which makes way more sense. Because you would have lots of internal injuries if you were shot in the ad- abdomen. And especially at that close of a range with a thirty-eight caliber gun. Yep. Okay, so she's in the hospital. Stan passed away. Her daughter's passed away. God, it's really terrible. So I'm have And she didn't even know at the time that she went to the hospital that it happened until the next day. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So she's thinking they just got her out of the house and Andres Andres probably with D and everything's fine and then they come in and tell her this is what we found. And I mean, how devastating. Mm. I mean, I don't know how much she really loved Stan. Maybe she really did love him. I mean, I don't really know. But Regardless, I mean, two people that you at least, one you cared for and one was your child, you just lost. So Yeah, it's got to be devastating. I think I would lose my shit and go shoot his ass right away. Because she, from the very beginning and even up until the end, she did not change her story. She said he did it. Mm-hmm. She said, cause so, so she accounted to seeing him, Beverly Bass, which was her daughter's friend, and then Gavril also. All three of them never changed her story that it was him. It was him. And especially that he walked out. Uh, Gavril said that after he was shot, Cullen walked out and a line shined on him and that's how he knew it was him. Um, but, I mean, Bev knew from the second that she saw him that it was him. Not just from, she's seen him a hundred times. I think she yeah. said you could put uh, 300 people in a room and I could still spot him out. I mean, that was her best friend's stepfather. Yeah. She'd been over there Many times. for the last six years. So... So on August 24th, almost a month after everything happened, they have a bond hearing and they listen to Priscilla's testimony, which is what I read at the beginning. Right. Um, from a wheelchair, which of I course, thought was funny. Because her ankle has been broken for and what, I'm like, a year and a half If now? you were shot in the <laughs> silicone boob, why do you need to walk in a wheelchair? Maybe why she you need to be in a wheelchair? her ankle when she was running the quarter of a mile to get help. Why do you need a wheelchair? Why are you looking at me like that? I don't know. I mean, I don't blame her. I don't she's trying her. to, she's trying to look really pathetic in the eyes of the jury so that she can sell her story. So they have the the hearing to determine whether or not he'll be released on bond or held in the county jail, or whether the grand jury either decides to, like, there's no case or they decide to indict him. Um, and if the bond is reset, it would still apply after the indictment. Which was the one thing that uh, when I was reading that, I was thinking, you know. If someone like me was in that jail, there wouldn't be so much question because I'm not a millionaire. So it's obvious from the beginning how his money goes into yep. how he comes out because 
If you have one eyewitness, it's really, really hard to not get found guilty. But you have three eyewitnesses, and two of them were victims of the shooting. One of them got away without being shot. So you're telling me that there's three people, and it's taken you 20 days to have a bond hearing. And then you may even let him out. Well, I think part of the reason why this went his way is he got the best lawyer he could find. Yeah, so tell me about him. So his name is Richard Racehorse Haynes. And there's several different accounts as to how much this guy was paid. So Racehorse, we're just going to call him that from here on out. He's from Houston. And he has several really big cases under his belt. Uh, obviously, T. Colin Davis was the one of the most popular ones. But he was also involved in one called The State versus John Hill. There was a book written about that called Blood and Money. And then there was another one where he represented Morgana a.k.a. the Kissing Bandit, and Vicki Daniel. And this one said that his successful defense of Vicki Daniel established battered spouse abuse syndrome as a legal defense in the state of Texas. That's your defense, like if you're in an abusive relationship and you snap and kill that person, it's actually considered a syndrome where you can actually get away with it because you lived with this abuse so long and you snapped and you were like, okay, yeah, I I did it because of abuse. Mm Mm-hmm, okay. He described his secret of being a really good attorney was that he had an answer to any question from a judge or prosecutor or being prepared to change the subject. At a seminar in 1970, he explained how to argue alternative pleading. This was the example he gave, and this is in quotes. Say you sue me because you claim my dog bit you. Well, now this is my defense. My dog doesn't bite. And second... In the alternative, my dog was tied up that night. And third, I don't believe you really got bit. And fourth, I don't have a dog. Oh my God. (laughs) Scott, he was crazy. Um, When he first started practicing, he would ask his clients to thank the judge and jury after their acquittal. But he ended that practice after one client said, and I quote, Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank each and every one of you. And I promise you that I will never, ever do it again. And I guess he was like, you can't say that that you'll never ever do it again because you might you might and I don't want to be held responsible Mm -hmm. if you do so he stopped doing that uh they said one time he crossed examined an empty chair when the prosecution failed to call a key witness his courtroom theatrics included shocking himself with a cattle prod to make a point (laughs) in defending a biker gang that had nailed a woman to a tree he planned to drive a nail into his hand to show the jury it wasn't painful but changed his mind at the last second. Oh my gosh. So besides his theatrics, he really was good at his job because he basically would throw himself into it. He would read all books related to any case. Some examples are um, criminology, pathology, ballistics, psychology, crime scene investigation techniques. Whichever is called for any particular case, he would read any book that he could find about that and take that information and use it during his trials. Sounds very, very smart. Yes. He was in the Marines during World War II. Uh, He served as a paratrooper and hand-to-hand combat instructor with the 11th Airborne Division during the Korean War. During the Battle of Iwo Jima, he was awarded the Navy and Marine Corps Medal for pulling two wounded and drowning Marines from the water after their landing craft overturned. Uh, at at five seven in height, he was an excellent boxer. He was Texas amateur welterweight champion in the 1940s. He got the nickname Racehorse from a coach that said he couldn't carry the ball through the opposing team's line, 
but could run toward the sideline like a racehorse. He passed away in 2017 and he lived in Livingston, Texas. So of course, Colin had the money to buy the best attorney and he bought the best attorney. He paid this guy. And because of how into the cases racehorse would get, and because he knew what the hell he was doing, he was able to manipulate the jury, everybody. And, and I think that it went the way they wanted it to go. So does he win the Salty Award? Don't know that that's called Salty. Maybe. I, I think so. He's the one, unless we want to call, it's either him or Priscilla. Like, which that's one of true. them? I don't it know. could be either one. And maybe two people get it this time. Maybe. Because neck he, was, neck. he was definitely Salty with his remarks. And we've got some pictures. We'll upload some pictures of him. He looked like a regular Texas guy. Some of the pictures he's got his cowboy hat on. But he was he was a lot more than just an attorney. He did a lot of other, other stuff. So, um Maybe he is salty, but maybe Priscilla is too. So on uh, February 22nd, 1977, they start getting the jury together to start the proceedings because the grand jury hears the case and they completely agree that he does need to be indicted. A month goes by. They can't get a jury together. Because because it's too public, right? Well, yeah, it's so publicized. Like, I know we both said this. There was so many articles there's so much information on this case and i got a little overwhelmed a few times because i thought like i can't read every single article because i'll be here for weeks researching Mm -hmm. this and so i get 50 articles per page and there were times where one day would have like two or three pages and i was like i can't go through all this Mm -hmm. and so i can understand that it was so saturated with information that they just could not find jurors that didn't have an opinion or didn't know what's going on yeah so a few times racehorse would say let's move to amarillo it's the next big place it's further away maybe we should try there and they were like no 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 we'll get it we'll be fine and so another month goes by and then another month goes by, and we're into June now. Wow. So we're now five months from the indictment, and we don't have a jury. The racehorse goes to the judge and says, I want to declare a mistrial because my my client can't get a fair trial here. And yep. you're not willing to move it, so what's the point? It's been five months. He's in jail this whole time. His wife is running amok, and the divorce can't even begun to be settled. This isn't fair to him. And so they say, no. We're going to move it to Amarillo. We agree with you. We don't want a mistrial. This is a highly publicized situation. A little girl lost her life. Woman was injured. A man lost his life. Another man will never walk again. So we can't have a mistrial. Yep. So they agreed to move it to Amarillo. August 22nd of 1977, the trial um, opens. It's the pretrial hearing. And uh, Priscilla takes the stand for a long time. So she, like... Back to what you were saying about the racehorse when it comes to how he could cross-examine a chair. Oh, my gosh. He was relentless with his examining any person on the witness stand. She was on the stand for many days, like day after day after day. Like, I would read the article, and it was the same information just the next day, the next day. On the 22nd, she goes through her testimony again, what she's, which is what I went through in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, doesn't change. And she states... To him, I'm not saying I miss Goody Two-Shoes, but their only defense of Cullen is to destroy me. I realize while Cullen is on trial, it's really me they're after. They're treating this like a smutty divorce when in reality it's about a murder. My 12-year-old child was killed. They seem to forget, but I never will. So I can understand her being pissed. Like, I'm on the stand and you're coming at me about how I dress, how I look, 
in what I do in my spare time when that's not what this is about. But I didn't do this. That's racehorse's MO. That's what he does. Mm-hmm. He even, I read it. He's the king of changing the subject, pointing the attention back to where he wants it to be. I mean, we all know she wasn't perfect. And, and like I even heard one of the documentaries I watched, one of the women that was talking about her said her reputation in the neighborhood was she was a whore. So sorry, but uh, that's not, those are my words. I'm just repeating it. So mm-hmm. she didn't have a very good reputation. So it didn't take much for him to spend that. And for people, it's not like they were shocked. Like, oh my God, I can't believe he's saying that about her. Mm-hmm. Some of them probably had their own experiences and witnessed stuff that backed his story, which made it easy for him to continue to flip the script back on her. And it was it was funny because when she went into trial, every time she was in the court, she didn't dress like the Priscilla everybody knew. She wore shirts up to her <laughs> neck, big cross, no rich bitch, long sleeve shirts, and long dresses. So though they she tried to paint this facade that she wasn't that way, she very much was. And so the next day, which may be the winning day of the Salty Award for Mr. Haynes here. So he attempts to turn in a provocative picture of Priscilla and a partially nude friend of hers into evidence. But how he does it... Oh, I remember this. ...is very, like, very sneaky. sneaky. So he... Not only does he get the picture, <laughs> but he blows up the picture, and he makes it poster size. And he has multiple copies. So he gets up from the desk on his side and he gets up and it's facing outwards and he's so it's facing the jury he's he's pointing it towards <laughs> the jury and he brings it around to take it to the judge to ask if it can be put in evidence so at this point <coughs> even if they don't put it in evidence everybody's seen it everybody knows this picture that she made and the picture was of her with a santa hat on and nothing else but she's like peeking out from behind this man that's standing in front of her wearing a Santa hat and another Santa hat on another part of his body. On the nether regions? Yes. Ho, um, ho, ho. And that's all he's wearing. And so he's kind of blocking her while she peeks around. So it's a very provocative picture. And this, the man in the picture is W.T. Ruffner, who is my, sure, I, I love favorite. him. He's great. Um, that man and her, which was taken when they did this Willie Nelson right. trip with the motorhome and everything. So obviously when he tries to bring it up, they're like, you're not putting that. That has no bearing on this. You can't. He's like, okay, no problem. Damage is already done at that right. point. He kind of asks her about it. And she says again, a very similar statement that, you know, your only defense is to destroy me, but it doesn't matter if I was the biggest hooker, doper or whatever you want to call me. It has absolutely nothing to do with what he did to me. And so, of course, like you said, that's just racehorse's MO. That's what he does. Mm-hmm. Um, so the next day, August 25th, he's going into about how she did drugs and that she was involved in gun selling, which there was no evidence of See, that. I didn't hear any of that. But he says that because she had biker gangs, which is a little bit racial when it comes to biker gangs to just assume that they also sell guns. I guess that has happened in the past. But he, he's saying, well, if you hung out with biker gangs... You were selling drugs. You were selling guns. And then he brings up the nude photo again. And he doesn't say he, again, I guess because of all the research he's done, he doesn't say it in a way that points to evidence no. number blah. He just says, well, we, you're known to take nude or half nude pictures with, with men that you're not married to. So it can't be. they've heard it again, right? So, of course, the prosecution 
you know, they go against that and say, you know, we've already thrown that out of evidence. He's like, I'm not showing the picture. I'm just saying that she does this. This is what she does. Um, and then then he brings up how she was romantically involved with W.T. Ruffner. And so that's how he's able to talk about the picture. And that's how he brings the picture up is he says that you were romantically involved with this man and he elicited to you different types of drugs like Percodan and you were addicted to them. He tries again with the photograph and he asks the judge again, can I please bring the photo up so the jury can see what kind of man she was cheating with? Because Racehorse was trying to show is that this wasn't another elite country club man. Right. This, this was, was someone in her circle. This is just a drifter that didn't have a place to live. He just went around with other women and did whatever. And to just kind of show that. So she, um, I'm sorry, she was wearing a halter top. But there wasn't, okay. they weren't able to tell if she was wearing bottoms oh. because of the way she was peeking behind him. And she, uh, Priscilla states to the racehorse that uh, my relationship with him was nothing more than, than social. Like, we were just friends. And she denied being a habitual user of Percodan. Habitual. Uh-huh. Actually, I, I have that he got her to admit that she was. Well, initially she said, she, she says in one statement, I was not a habitual user of Percodan. But I was taking as many as 200 pills a week and I was probably addicted. So she, he gets her yeah. to admit, say what he mm-hmm. wants her to say, which was the truth. Yep. And, but then she also says, but I only took the pills to relieve a variety of ailments like my fractured ankle. I had breast tumors and my injuries from the bullet wound. That's the only reason why I took it. But I never used LSD. I never used cocaine. I never used heroin. But I did smoke marijuana as a teenager. And that's... All she that's all she alludes to is that that's all she's guilty of, um, that she was not a habitual drug user. Except she took up to 200 Percodans a week. Yes. And they had a pharmacist agree that he filled her a 300 pill prescription of Percodan when she had just filled a 200 bottle of Percocet. So that's 500 pills she was given in a very short amount of time, which now there's laws on that, but right. then there wasn't. And so that's, I mean, unless she was selling it, I mean, she was taking it, she probably would have died overdose, but obviously I'm sure she was sharing it at parties I'm with sure. her friends, you know? Yeah, I'm sure. What he's trying to drive home is that he thinks that the night of the shootings, she was just in a narcotic haze and that she didn't really see what she thought she saw. Um, he claims that he thinks the shooter was someone that she owed money to for drugs. He says that they came to the house, started shooting, and it was simply just a drug deal gone bad, which is why he was so adamant on how many pills she took, how many men she slept with. Maybe she pissed somebody off because the prosecution relied almost entirely on eyewitness testimony. But, you know, I have to say when I was about this point in the case, we discussed this, like I agreed with him to an extent. I'm like, it just doesn't make sense. The whole, like, the little girl just didn't make sense to me on why Cullen would do that. It made more sense that she came in and it was a drug deal gone bad, like she owed the money. Or these people who went to her house knew how much she was worth and maybe just went in to steal a couple of things. Because, I mean, fill up a garbage bag full of stuff, you'd probably have hundreds of thousands of dollars of stuff in a bag, you know? Lots of of expensive artwork. So I felt like, well, it'd make more sense for a stranger because they wouldn't have expected a little girl to be there because I'm sure they never saw her at any parties because she's probably on the other side of the neighborhood Mm -hmm. with how big that house was. So it just made more sense to me that 
It was a stranger. It was, that it was a stranger. At this point in the... I don't know how everybody else feels, but... Right. I think he did it, but that's just me. Davis did not testify at all. He didn't get on the stand at all. He didn't want to be cross-examined or anything like that. Coward. There was zero evidence. They didn't find any evidence connecting anyone. Right. There was no no fingerprints. The bloody stuff that was found belonged to the people that were dead. It didn't, it wasn't, there was nothing to point to anyone. Um, I have on September 2nd, the defense attorney um, described Priscilla as being schemy, greedy, and devious. Yep. That's how the racehorse described her. And um, that Cullen at one time called uh, Andrea stupid and he kicked at her. And he didn't like her to be in the house. So that was brought up by, by the defense or the prosecution. And let's not forget what he did to that little innocent kitten just because he was pissed off. Yeah. And um, there was a phone call in the spring of 1974 um, where Cullen called uh, Andrea on her landline at the house where she lived with her dad and left a voicemail uh, cussing at her and angry at her and banished her from coming back to his mansion. And she, she was not to return and told her everything I ever bought you or your mom bought you with my money. You need to send back. I didn't read that. And that is why her dad said, you won't go back there until he's gone. So that is why Andrea really never went back to the house. Um, she stayed with her dad. And at least until Colin moved out. Correct. Because at that point, I'm sure he felt, well, if he's not there, then she's safe to go back. Yeah. But when they heard that message, they're very, very, I mean, she was 12 at the time. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sorry. She was 10 at the time. Ten. And you're yelling at a 10-year-old. Um, then 10 days later, Gus Gavril takes the stand. And he's the one that was paralyzed. Mm-hmm. He was 22. He was the one who was dating uh, Beverly Bass, which was Dee's friend. Um, he did end up being partially paralyzed. And on the stand, he had his aluminum crutches there that he had yep. to walk with. I saw a picture really of sad. that. Yeah. Um, and so he accounts what what he said that he went to the mansion to drop off Beverly and spend the evening with them. And he said as soon as he went around the corner, he said he felt like a horse kicked him in the chest, and he just immediately went straight down. Um, and that he crawled through a broken window across uh, the floor to the telephone. But the phone was inoperative, and he doesn't know if the they oh, like I cut didn't a cord. Read that. If he like cut a cord, <laughs> or if maybe it was just a phone for decoration, he wasn't sure. So he and then he lost consciousness, and when he woke up, Beverly was there with the security officer from the neighborhood, um, helping him. So yeah, he had his own security detail. Mm-hmm. So on November the second, <laughs> my best friend W. T. Ruffner takes the stand. And he says that he was a former boyfriend of Priscilla. And he, as soon as he gets on, he starts criticizing how the defense attorney are talking to Priscilla. And he tells them, I don't think it's right how you're portraying her. And I don't think it's right how you're speaking to her. Because it's not right what you're doing. And I just want to make that known. And they're like, okay, can you answer the question? Uh, He stated that he, he was ready. And he is excited to have an interesting session. And he unzipped his jacket with a t-shirt on that said (laughs) Ruffner. And it was a giant picture of the picture that the racehorse wanted to put into evidence. He was like, you want everybody to see it? No problem. And he had it printed on a shirt. When he left the courtroom, there's a picture I have, where he tries to sell those shirts to (laughs) 
The racehorse. And the racehorse's picture, his face is like, are you freaking kidding me? You are on drugs, dude. But a side note, <clears throat> an Amarillo grandmother bought one for her 40-year-old son. And she said, I'm going to buy anything that was $100. Because at first he was pricing them at $100. He was out in the parking lot with his trunk open with these shirts, selling them for $100. And when people stopped buying them for $100, he dropped it down to 10 So she bought him one. She bought her son one. Whenever he's on the stand, the racehorse believes that Mr. Ruffner was the one that did the shootings. He feels like you are a drug addict. This is that drug deal gone bad guy. That yes, he, this yeah. is the one that he's referring to. There's some so jealousy he's there. automatically getting on the stand. He didn't like the racehorse. He's already mad, and he's very defensive that you would put me in that situation. So he tells him, I was nowhere near that home the night of the shootings. Um, he said, I did go to the mansion after, after I came back. From our trip, I did go there quite often after they were separated, but we had an affair while they were still married. But it ended in the spring of 75 during a drunken conflict. They just got into a fight and they broke up and he just didn't really see her again until Colin moved out. People described him as humorous and freewheeling when he was on the stand and that he made a stage out of it. That he was very comical and a lot of laughter came from him being up there. Uh, He stated that he was lovers with Priscilla while they were separated, and that they shared a couch in Boston, like we talked about before. So um, the racehorse says to him, he provided the witness his own definition to which he feels Ruffner was involved. He tells the jury, this man went into the house. He, killed, I mean, he just completely makes up a whole story. And Ruffner's like, wow. <laughs> and just has a little bit of an applause for him. He's like, wow, it's a good story. And he said, I was and I still am in love with Priscilla, but I'm in love with a lot of women and some of whom I've never met. <laughs> <laughs> I can see how's your favorite. <laughs> yeah. He said, uh, they were not exclusive when they were together. He said, I've always had more than one lady in my life and that she had kicked him out a few times and there were mornings that were total harmony and there were mornings that were total hell. So he said that him and Priscilla did take Percodan together and that he, that he had taken some of her pills before they broke up. Like... They would, she would share them with him. And what's funny is that Racehorse kept asking Ruffner a few times, like, okay, well, did y'all do cocaine together? And he's like, I played the fifth. He's like, well, you just told us that you did Percodan and Percocet together, so can, did, you, did you do heroin? He's like, I played the fifth. And then he asked him, did you, uh, did you have, you were arrested previously with distribution and intent to sell, were you doing heroin this night? He's like, I played the fifth. He's like, I already know that you had it in possession. I, you've already been tried. You've already gone to jail and spent your time doing that. Why can't you just answer the question? He's like, judge, do I have to answer if I plead the fifth? And he's like, if you plead the fifth, that's fine. And he did it 13 times while being on the stand with um, the racehorse. You know, that was pissing the racehorse off too. If he can't, this one person that he's interrogating isn't caving to his... Yeah. His other methods that everybody else just falls right in line with. So he was my favorite. Good for him. I yeah. just really liked him. Um, so next is take the and stand. Did he ask for a cigarette? Yeah. So he's on the stand and he gets a cigarette out and he's like. Because at that point, like the judge is smoking. That's in the 70s yeah. when everybody could smoke everywhere. The racehorse is like talking to him and asking him questions. And he puts a cigarette in his mouth and he's like t- patting his shirt and his jacket. And so the racehorse is clearly frustrated. He's like, do you need a light? He's like, yeah, man, that'd be great. <laughs> So he lights him up on the stand. Um, so the next person to take the stand was um, Sandy Myers. She was 27, and she claims to be the dope sales lady for Priscilla. And she said, I I sold to her for years, 
And um, Priscilla told me a week before the shooting that she wanted to get rid of Stan, that she didn't want to be with him anymore, and she was done with him being there. She didn't want to break his heart. It would be easier if he'd just be gone. And she was currently on 10-year probation for possession with intent to sell. She said, I lived in the mansion shortly after Cullen left, and I saw what happened, and I sold her all this, and um, she wanted Stan gone. So then it's kind of like, okay, well, did... So it sounds like he was just a really nice guy, and it wasn't her type. Like, she likes the bad boy, rich boy type. And so when, when she says gone, she doesn't mean dead. She just means, like, not dating him anymore, right? The statement that Priscilla said, and I quote... She wanted to get rid of Stan shortly before he was killed. Ten days before he was killed, she told Sandy, I want to get rid of Stan. That's not good. I didn't no. read that. But also, I mean, she's also been a been a dope sales lady. She's now on probation for ten years. How do we know that they didn't say, if you tell us something, we'll knock a couple years off. You know? Yeah. I mean, we don't... It doesn't really jive with everything else, so... And she was the only person to say that? Yeah. So on November the 8th, Becky Bruins, she was a barmaid that worked at the Rhinestone Cowboy, and she claims that there was one night she went into the kitchen whenever David Allen Coe was performing. David Allen Coe, Stan Farr, and a Horace Copeland were in the back snorting cocaine. And she said everywhere Stan was with cocaine, that's where Priscilla was. And she said it was not uncommon to see them together. She saw many times Priscilla involved in pill transactions where she was giving pills and getting money. And then she would turn around and go buy cocaine with that money. So makes more sense why she's getting so many pills. Right. And that wasn't the only occasion. That's just one because Example. it was David Allen Co. So obviously right. she remembers that. And then um, a Tom Hubbard, he was a car salesman, he was on the stand saying that he attended many parties with Priscilla with white, powdery, and green leafy substances. Not green leafy. The green leaf. Then a Roe Bright, who was an ex-convict, said he had parties with Priscilla at various apartments. Um, he never went to the mansion, but he went to many apartment parties with her, and they were the same people at every party, and they always had the same stuff. There was always cocaine, there was always marijuana, and there were always pills. Um, he said that there we go into the bathroom, and there was always cocaine lines ready to go. So it was, I mean, more and more people are saying that she was in this lifestyle when they were separated. Yeah. The random people that went to these parties, you know, how many people were in and out of that house, I mean, yeah. who knows? And then... You know how rich you are, right? And you know what's in that house. Like one painting somebody could take and not have to work for a couple of years. And you just subject your house to that. And your, potentially your children, if your daughters are there. Mm -hmm. Like if no other reason, those are two reasons right there to not let people that you don't know or have these wild, crazy parties. Because what if they find their way to your daughter's room, God forbid, you mm -hmm. know? So for the next 10 days, the trial continues. And four of those days, the racehorse is doing his closing arguments. Yeah, because when have you ever heard closing arguments taking four days? That's why he's the racehorse man. Usually the judge is like, you got 45 minutes and then you're done. Yeah. But in this case, I've never heard of it being more than a full day. Four days. Because like usually one of them gets a day to do their closing arguments. Like the prosecution has a day to close arguments. The defense has a day to close arguments. And then you're done. But he had four days. He did have four days. And that's how he rolls. So on November the 17th, after four hours of deliberation, they get a verdict. Tell me what Tell me what they said. Well. Pretty sure racehorse got two words, way. so it's not good. Not guilty. Son of a bitch. So I'm sure he, I, I'm sure he celebrated, right? 
did, I'm sure he threw oh, yeah. a party. So he Court leaves house. the courthouse and he's all happy with his wife or his is. girlfriend, Karen, and because he's still married to Priscilla. And so he leaves and he's excited. And so they go to whatever happened in places in Amarillo and he has a party. That was a big party. Is it at the Rhinestone Cowboy? No, that's in Fort Worth. Oh, I'm sure they have one in Amarillo, though. Oh, doesn't, what's his name, George Strait, have a bar there? No? I don't know. I don't know. I'm making shit up. <laughs> <laughs> and while he's there, he makes a little mistake that comes out later. Uh-oh. Not Colin. He, he goes over to the prosecu- the prosecutors. Did you? Were you going to say the prostitution? I think so. I think so, too. He went over there and told them... I will pay you if you'll tell me what your angle was. Like, what? What was your angle to get me caught? Because I just want to know. And they're like, uh, F you. We ain't giving you shit. We just lost. We yeah. hate you. Get the away from us, yeah. right? Buy us a, a Jack yeah. Daniels and get out what of our face. What are they doing right. there then? Exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. So, well, it's probably the only place to go in Amarillo. He's crazy. So, so excited, right? A little too ballsy. And I think he forgets that... There is still law. Yeah. So he comes back home, and his divorce judge, Edson, doesn't care how rich he is, doesn't care who he is or where he came from, and is refusing to budge on anything at all when it comes to the divorce. He hates Judge Edson right now. Yeah. He absolutely hates him. Well, Edson doesn't like him either, so it's mutual. And he, he wants what he wants. He doesn't want to give Priscilla what she wants. And so he's just, he's, he doesn't know what to do. So he's like, well... What can I do in this situation to get what I want? Hmm. I have money. I have lots of powerful friends. Who? Maybe I can find a friend to do a dirty deed for me. Like what kind of dirty deed? Like maybe I can call a friend and ask that friend to find a hitman to kill some people for me. Because I have the money. I'm And I'm bulletproof. I have racehorse hands in my back pocket. And I have cops in my back pocket. And I have... Probably senators and councilmen. Like, all of Fort Worth is my own playground, right? So... Mm -hmm. And probably now Amarillo, because I'm sure before he went there, someone that he knows, one of his scapegoats, he went and sent out to feel the pastures out there. Right. And fill the pockets before he got there. Yep. He also planned a big trip to Aspen, Colorado for Thanksgiving that he was planning while he was in jail. (laughs) So he was so confident that he was going to get off that he... Planned a whole trip to Aspen, Colorado from his jail cell. And, side note, you know how usually when someone who's, you know... Being tried for murder. Yes. And whenever it's time for recess and everybody goes to lunch and they go back to the jail and they eat... They eat jail food. Not Cullen Davis. He got to go back to one of the deliberation rooms and he was served T-bone steak with his attorneys... I'm sure racehorse had everything to do with that. waiters came in in gold jackets and gave him his food and his champagne or his wine or whatever he wanted. And it was handmade and brought to him whenever it was time for recess. Living that good life. So, like, I mean, how is that fair? Money, honey. It's just... That's it. Money, money, and more money. Okay, so let's talk about the hitman that we just talked about. So on August 20th of 1978... Mr. Cullen Davis drives his blue Chevy car to the Coco Hamburgers, which yep. I have a picture of, to meet a Mr. David McCrory. Yep. And little did Mr. Davis know, or maybe he did know, that he was he under he did. FBI surveillance. And um, David McCrory, McCrory 
gets in the car with Mr. Davis and shows him a black and white picture of a dead Judge Edson. And he's like, all right, I did it. This was the hitman he hired. I got rid of Judge Edson for you. What else do you want? And he's like, I I think you said you wanted um, Suzanne, which was Priscilla's best friend, Mm -hmm. dead. And you want Dee dead, which is her daughter. And Mm -hmm. you want Priscilla dead. And he's like, all right. Like, he doesn't say yes. He didn't say no. He's kind of generic um, in his responses. But he responds, and then he proceeds to give Mr. McCrory $25,000 and said, this is just partial. I'll give you the rest later. And he's like, look, I need to know how much longer it's going to take you to get the money because my hitman didn't play. Like, murder's a big deal. And so he went through the list, which is about 13 people. Mm -hmm. I read that, too. So they leave. They leave leave the area. And he's followed, and he was arrested at a phone booth at a KFC in Fort Worth. And I Mm -hmm. wonder who he was going to call. I don't know. So once maybe again, maybe racehorse, maybe, maybe. So he once again finds himself behind bars less than a year since the last time he was behind bars being charged with murder for hire. Did you get what his story was? Like why he, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So he, so he calls Haynes <laughs> and he requests him to represent him again. Yeah. And he's like, look, Here's, you only paid me $250,000 to represent you in the, in the murder. And you had lots left over. And I understand that during that time, you had all your shit backed up, and there was a problem with all that, and you couldn't give me very much, but if you want me to do this, I want $2 million right now. Doesn't include later, but right now, I want $2 million. So, he says, okay, that's fine. (laughs) So, he goes, he's in jail, he's represented by Haynes, and please tell me what his defense was. So, Colin claims that the FBI contacted him and said, your friend McCroy, who was a previous business associate, is going to be contacting you. So, with whatever he presents to you, just go with this plan. Whatever it is he says, just agree to do it. Yes, yes, yes. So, he thought he was a double agent. (laughs) So, like, he woke up and was like, I'm James Bond. But McCrory says, no, I was a former business partner of his. And he told the FBI... That Colin asked him to hire a, hire a hitman to kill the judge, and therefore the FBI came up with a plan. But the FBI did not have any involvement with Colin. So at that point, what, what would the FBI have to gain by lying? If they mm-hmm. said, I mean, they admitted to miking up McCrory so that they could get Colin on tape, but why would they not mic up Colin as well? Right. right? You know, right. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. So he has this bullshit story where he says that he was a double agent and that he didn't really ask McCrory this stuff. He just went along with it thinking he was working with the FBI, which like I said, is stupid because the FBI did not have anything to do with Davis and believed that their case was solid because they had all this voice and video there's there. You can find on the internet. We'll put links up there, but basically that entire encounter is on film. And the other, black and white. The, I'm, I'm not saying that his. I'm not saying that he's telling the truth. He's obviously lying. But it is weird how he answers him. Like almost like he knew that he was being that he may be recorded. It's almost like he took the precaution of if Maybe. he is mic'd up, I'm not going to be. You know, like because he. But then he does if talk I'm not about being, if I'm not being recorded, killing people though, or but having it, people killed. But if but like he doesn't prompt that conversation. Everything's prompted by McCroy. All he gives him is answers. He never says, like, I want Priscilla dead. But he gives him the money, though. Yeah, but I'm just saying it's just interesting how you would think that if he knew that, like, 
I'm not going to get caught and I'm not being recorded. Like, he wouldn't have been so generic in his answers. Hmm. Like, he, I mean, if he wanted them dead, he'd be like, oh, great, this is great. I'm glad. Okay, well, um, I want Priscilla dead. I want D dead. I want this person dead. Yeah, kill him all. I don't care. You know, like, he just seems... Maybe he didn't trust the guy enough. It yeah. was trying to... Maybe he stayed that way on purpose in case he did get caught. That would, hit, that that would was be his, his defense. Yeah. yeah. So I don't believe that he... Uh, knew about it. I think he was just being overly precautious yeah. and thinking if somehow this is being taped or this guy turns on me because they were business partners mm-hmm. If this guy wants to mm-hmm. turn on me. If I don't incriminate myself too much, I can probably right. race horses in my back pocket. I'll be able to get away with that, it. That's what I mean. It's just yeah. how you like, yeah, I think he knew like in the back of his mind, like, I don't know if this is going to go right. Yeah. Which I think is why during the trial, he was so nervous more so than he was with the previous case because the previous case was, a, was just hearsay, which is his word against theirs. But this one is like, like they said, we have evidence. video and audio, but then did you also hear what racehorse was saying about the evidence? He was trying to say that the way that they pieced together everything that they left out parts Oh, okay. because so in the 70s when this was recorded, they had to take what was recorded and they had to put it on three different devices to make one tape. So he was saying, well, you have 20 seconds of this tape and 10 seconds of this tape. How do we know that you didn't move things around and this and that? Oh, I see. So the way, I mean, like today we record it and there's no editing. Like it's legit. What you yeah. said is what's been recorded. But then the way that it had to be so the jury could hear it and everything, and it was actually out on to hear both sides. It was on three different machines and then put together for one tape. So he was trying to say, well, you cut and pasted stuff. How do we know that this is accurate? And so I kind of think that when the jury deliberated on November the 9th, uh, which was two and a half months into the case, they said he was not guilty. Son of a bitch. Good job, racehorse, but son of a bitch. Like, the FBI thought it was signed, sealed, and delivered. Like, they... They don't normally, you know, it's the FBI. I mean, they're not naive enough to think, because if, if, if they don't have, if they don't think they have enough evidence, they'll keep going until they do. Yeah. Right. They don't so, quit. right. But he's got money. And like we've said a few times, like he had his hand in a lot of people's back pockets. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, he got off again. And this is where he goes again to the, the same party. place. This is the party that I've been waiting this for. This is the <laughs> second party he goes to because it was also in Amarillo mm-hmm. that he had this case as well because he wouldn't have a fair trial in Fort Worth. Let's try a different city. That's true. Like take maybe a, take his ass to Austin. Yeah. Yeah. So again. He paid and, somebody to move it to, to Amarillo. Right. So again in Amarillo and then. Um, so he throws the party. Mm-hmm. He goes to the bar. He has the party. He's so excited. He invited the sheriff. And what did the sheriff do? The sheriff was delighted to come and showed up with Cullen's old prison uniform and a hacksaw. Oh, my God. And then he presented Cullen with the key to the county jail. Forward Police Department was freaking embarrassed because their sheriff went to the party, brought all the shit, gave him keys to the jail. Like, I don't, I didn't read that he lost his job, but I read that he, that the Fort Worth Police Department were very embarrassed by this. Well, because he's probably been paying the sheriff for years. Probably. So he has, and then while he's at the party, the jurors show up, the bailiffs show up. <laughs> like it's his big party. Yeehaw. You know that he was a was acquitted again. And I actually read that when the verdict was read, that the judge 
did some cussing under his breath and mm-hmm. stomped off the bench. Like, yeah. And, and the courtroom erupted. I'm not I sure read. if we said this, but Judge Edson wasn't actually killed. Oh, no. It that was, was fake. a stage. Yeah, yeah. They used a McDonald's ketchup, ketchup. <laughs> on his shirt. But and it a, was a black and white right. photo. I mean, it yeah. looked like real blood to me the way the pictures yeah. I saw. But yeah, it, it, he wasn't really dead. Um, so when he comes back to town after his miraculous second acquittal, Judge Edson is so put out with him, he steps down. Yeah, I like, read that too. He's like, sorry, you're going to have to find a new lawyer. Yeah. So he gets himself a new lawyer, and guess what that lawyer does? Let me guess. He got all the shit back? He got everything he wanted. He played the country music song backwards. <laughs> <laughs> and Priscilla didn't get the house, and mm-hmm. she only got a settlement of $3 million, which... Oh, I say only because she wanted so much more. But yeah, she was is... asking her lawyers for a hundred million, is what I mm-hmm. read. Yeah. And then did you read what she did to get back at him after she left yes. the house? She there was like a court order saying she couldn't take anything from the house. Mm-hmm. But I read she she kept fifty household items. Mm-hmm. Did you read that too? Mm-hmm. Things like the food processor, and she did get the silver fox bedspread, yeah. right? Um, and that she left him a present. What what present did she leave him? Um, shit. <laughs> From in, the cat and dog. In the safe. <laughs> so she took one of the items that she knew she wasn't supposed to take that she knew he would go and look for. She went and put it in the safe and she's like, hey, cocaine made? Yeah. Whenever they get here, tell them. It was a chess set. It was a, it was a, a chess. A really expensive chess set. I remember like that. By, uh, by tusks, made of tusks, elephant yep. tusks, I think. And she's like, let him know that it's. A, I put it in the safe. So when he opens his safe, there's this giant pile of shit. Pile of steaming cat and dog shit. And then, um, so he moves in to the mansion with mm-hmm. his now new new wife because the divorce is now settled. So he marries Karen, mm-hmm. and now they're married, and they live there until 1980. Mm-hmm. He sells the mansion. And he files for bankruptcy, and yep. unfortunately, Davis Oil goes under, which is really sad. You know, I mean, even when we look at, like, our dad and our grandfather, that our grandfather that worked so hard for construction and built so much, I can't imagine how much heartache that has to be to look at everything that you built, and then one of your children just Brings completely runs it down. Like, everything he worked for, for nothing. Mm-hmm. And imagine how helpless his brothers had to be, because they were witness to it going down the tubes and there wasn't a damn thing they could do except maybe just try to protect themselves. And And he only got to live there for two years with his new wife before all that went under. And maybe that's karma, which he deserves, you know? Yeah. We talked about this yesterday. It was, he sold it. It became a steakhouse. Yeah. It's been multiple things. Yeah. I did. Uh, yeah. In April 96, it was a fancy Southwestern cuisine restaurant. They said they made the living room into a flashy lounge. Uh, the elegant library was now a waiting room. And that the old wine cellar was now a private dining room. It says, so the owner at that time, or the principal owner, was a man by the name of Walter Kaufman, who was spared in 76 when he turned down a late night invitation to visit the $6 million mansion. Although tempted, the popular restaurant owner declined. If I had gone straight there, I would have gone with them. So if he had gone over there when they invited him, he would have also been killed. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. So was he? Was she? Did she invite him there to look it, at he it? He doesn't say who who invited him over that night. He just says when he turned down the late night invitation, it had to be her because she was living there. Remember, mm-hmm. uh, Colin wasn't there, so I guess somehow Priscilla or maybe Stan invited him over, mm-hmm. and he he turned it down. But he said I would have gone with him. That's crazy. If I'd gone straight there, I would have. 
And he, he was and he made it shot. into a steakhouse, right? He made it into uh yeah, it was the it was called Stonegate Mansion Restaurant. It sat vacant for a while. Uh and I think that's when like there were a and lot it, of like crackheads and stuff broke into it. Well, it was pretty the, demolished. And then it was the Mexican restaurant, mm-hmm. Stonegate Hacienda. Yep. And then it was vacant again. Mm-hmm. And then it was a church. Yeah, it was called the Power Church. That was August of 2007. And of all, all things for it to be, what is it now? A wedding venue. Because so much love happened in that house. And it is a beautiful, we have some pictures that we'll mm-hmm. post, but it is a very beautiful place. And I mean, it is a, I would think the layout, because it doesn't look like a house. No, it is very, it looks like a, like a museum, I guess. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really, and there's a lot of stone, like Stonegate is an appropriate name because even from the outside and the inside, there's, it's like a really pretty, just white stone. And then inside, like, um, I think you can see it in the, um, they have pictures online and then in the movie, they have that giant fireplace convection or the, where the smoke goes out, whatever, Mm -hmm. the chimney is like a round tube looking thing. It Mm -hmm. looks very modern. Yeah. It's like modern stone. It's, It's really nice looking. But not really, like, it doesn't feel homey. Yeah. But I do want to go check it out. We should, oh, like, yeah. act like we're going to rent it and go and see if we can tour it. Yeah. I wonder if the basement's still there. I, I wondered that. if uh, Maybe they maybe that was the wine cellar. Maybe. Oh, and the other thing I read that each time somebody else bought it and were going to make changes to it, Colin would show up and oversee the changes that they made. That's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't blame him. It was his baby. Right. You know? It was what he always wanted. And then in 2001, Priscilla passes away of mm-hmm. breast cancer yeah, at 59. I read that. Which was sad because she was even saying on the trial that she had breast tumors, which was sad that and maybe they didn't know she had cancer at the time. I don't know. Yeah. But you, yeah, maybe she didn't know. Um, I did read that not long after Colin was found not guilty the second trial, he made this big announcement and says he has found Jesus. So he goes down this path of finding Jesus. And then to prove this, he they said he publicly destroyed millions of dollars worth of gold, ivory, and jade artwork. But I and he it said publicly destroyed, but I couldn't find anything on the internet showing that he did it or so I don't know how he did this publicly. I I just read that in one spot. So I don't know and now he's like a missionary and like goes mm-hmm. around. Um, and then his, I, we read that his newest wife, Karen, also passed away two or three years ago at 67. And I, all I read was that the cause was unknown. There was an autopsy done that the sons wanted, but I don't know what her cause what of death was. What the outcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and then, you know, they said that he, um, I read that Stan's son, John, they tried to file wrongful death suit and get some money out of him. And so Colin ultimately paid them 250 grand. So they settled out of court for that. Earlier when we were taking our break, I read some stuff that John actually met with Colin like in 2016 Mm -hmm. to let him know that he had forgiven him and actually spent the night in his house with him. It's kind of weird. Yeah. I don't think I could do that. Yeah. I'd kill him. Yeah. I, we would, they'd be doing a podcast about me. I couldn't, yeah. I, I couldn't be in the same room as someone that took my dad's life. Absolutely not. No. So you Especially. believe, do you believe he did it? Well. Let's talk about that. So I do believe, I don't know, I'm still torn. You don't know? I think the part for me is that um, though he was very aggressive and he had very much motive to do it, he had reason to do it, um, there's just something about the way that it happened. Like he was very intelligent. He had a lot of money. 
And so I won. But, but he went up to the prosecutors and asked them what he had, they had on him. But That's I mean, not like, intelligence. I'm saying strategically, <laughs> he did do a lot of smart things. He was smart in a business sense. So I just don't understand why he would do it himself. You know, like even when he had the opportunity to get rid of him the second time, he still hired someone to do it. See, and I see it as he's such a freaking control freak that he wouldn't want anybody else but himself to do it because he wouldn't want to take away the satisfaction of what he did. He, he would want to feel that satisfaction himself and not live through it, not live, live it through with someone else having done it. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Like he was such a control freak that they may not do it the right way or maybe I'm, he wanted to see them suffer. Now, I don't really understand the little girl, yeah, but just, if he called and made threats to her and then he, you know, was pissed off at the older daughter because they didn't follow his rules, he didn't spend money on them, you know, I mean, I guess he did now and then if he called and said, give me all the shit that I bought you back, but it probably wasn't anything compared to what he spent on Priscilla. So he had some anger. He never really accepted her children like that. And then maybe he learned from that, which is why he adopted Karen's kids. I don't know. I think he did it. I think he's, I think he was pissed off. He was jealous. Things weren't going his way. His business had came to a grinding halt. She stopped everything. And then to throw it in his face, she was having all these parties and she didn't give a shit. She was living life. She had everything she wanted. She had house, money, friends, and freedom. And he didn't like that. So, you know, he, I think he did it. And then he called Racehorse and said, this is what I did. But she's got a really bad past. And there are so many people that show up at these parties that we could easily blame it on. Because as long as we find someone that has a similar build, because... I looked at the pictures of your, your favorite person, mm-hmm. WT, mm-hmm. and Colin, and they have similar builds. Yeah. Tall and skinny, right? So I think he did it. That's just mine. I'm kind I don't of... think he meant to shoot Andrea. I think that was an accident. But that was... But I can't say that, no, because she was shot execution style. Because well, that was... was in, well, she was shot in the chest. Execution style means at close range, right? Yeah. Well, all of them were killed at close range because it, it was only a thirty eight caliber. Yeah. So you had to be kind of close to them. But I'm kind of in the middle. I don't really... I believe 100% everything on the second trial. I think he did it. I think he should have been in, put in jail to want all those people dead because he had the means to do so. So he might as well have had the gun himself. Yeah. But the first one, to me, just seems... It's a little coincidental how she's the only one that she had the least amount of injury with the situation. Like, I almost feel like maybe she tried to shoot herself a little bit. Um, but it's just so coincidental. she wouldn't have so, her daughter killed. No. What I think happened is I think that she either asked someone to go to get rid of Cullen or someone to stage a robbery so that she could either get more money because it just so happened to be a night she didn't have a big party. Like, that's a little bit interesting. I mean, she had parties all the time. But this one night she goes out with Far, which she hadn't been doing. She'd been having parties. So I feel like she either hired someone to stage a robbery so that she could either get more money, maybe insurance money or what have you. Or somebody had been to the house and saw the layout and was like, um, I'm going to go in there. I'm going to steal some stuff. Yeah. And I think that... Maybe she approached this person and was like, hey, I want you to break into the house. I want you to steal some stuff, but I'll let you know when I want you to do it. And I think that person did it anyway. And I think when they got to the house, they saw the little girl and they're like, oh, shit. 
I don't want to get caught. She knows who I am. So they killed her and they were, they put her in the basement and they were just going to leave. And I think as they were leaving, I think they ran into her. And when she recognized who it was, she was like, oh my God, like no one can know that you did this because oh, so I'm going to get in trouble Colin. for, I'm going to get in trouble for my daughter's death. So that can't happen. That's what I think happened. Because Bev... That's logical. Bev and, Bev and Bubba, they never saw Priscilla. She says she saw them in the shrubs and took off running. They never saw her. Hmm. So that's, that's weird to me. Like, if she's standing... Why didn't she yell for them for help? Why did she run to the neighbor's house? Well, if didn't she go out a different door from where they were coming in? I thought she well, went Well, she the was back in the shrubs and, and she heard their voice. And instead of going to them, which is right there, <laughs> she went to the neighbor's house. So... That whole situation to me just doesn't jive. It just doesn't jive with him. Like, he would go to the house he knows he's not supposed to be at. He knows it's going to cost him a lot more money if he gets in trouble for being there. And for all he knows, she's having this lavish party. That's all she's been doing. So he's had many months to go to that house and do whatever he wants. Now, granted, there was motive that day because of everything going up. I don't doubt that at all. Um, I think what gets it for me is the little girl. That's the part that throws it off for me. It's yeah. how the little girl was killed, and she was, like, put away like they didn't want her to be found. Yeah. Not, why didn't he just shoot her and leave her where she was? That's the part that doesn't make sense to me. So I'm kind of on the fence. I do believe he's capable of it, and I believe that he he could have done it to her and him and the other guy, but the little girl just doesn't make, throws me off. What about you, producer? What do you think? You think you did it? I think I'm tired of being poor and not having a coke waitress. God dang it. It's a coke maid. Coke maid. Waitress. Hilda. All right. Well, that concludes our story of T. Colin Davis, the famous Fort Worth oil billionaire dude. Who's the murderer that shook the Lone Star State. I like that. So much. So we thank everyone for listening. Rest in peace, Andrea and Stan. And the rest of Gavril's spine that was severed. Yeah, we're resting in peace, people's injuries. Thank you for your support. Yeah, like us, share it. And if you hear of any cases, please send them our way. We'd love to read about them. Until next week. Case file 06, Colin Davis, closed.